Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cass, I'm going to guess that more than one of our listeners today are going to have a real-time, first-hand experience while listening to this episode because I bet many, many of you out there are wearing one of the most ubiquitous garments on the planet. I am, of course, speaking of jeans. Yes, and I am wearing jeans as we record this podcast. Uh, Today, (laughs) listeners, we bring you a much requested episode on the history of denim and jeans. Emma McClendon, who is the Associate Curator of Costume at the Museum at FIT, joins us again. She was um, last season, but she's here today to talk about her fascinating work on denim. And debunk a possible myth or two about the origins of denim. In fact, ones that we ourselves as fashion historians have subscribed to in the past. And it is such a gift that so many wonderful scholars from all around the world have agreed to join us on the show and to share their realms of research. I can honestly say that I have learned so, so much from our guests making the show the past two years. I wholeheartedly agree, and actually this brings up a point, Trust listeners. This is actually our final episode for season two of Dressed. We are actually going to take a much-needed break for the holidays, but we will be back with a brand new season starting first week of February. And, you know, we chose denim as this topic, as so many of you have asked for this, um, you know, so we kind of thought it would be perfect for our end of season two. Um, But, you know, don't worry, we'll be back in season for season three in February um, and just taking some much needed R&R for the holidays. So without further ado, the always infectious and talented Emma McClendon, welcome to the show. Emma, welcome back to the show. And I say welcome back because you were actually one of our very first guests on Dressed when we started nearly two years ago. (laughs) Um, You spoke to us about your exhibition that was up at the time at the Museum at FIT, Fashion and Physique. And honestly, that episode still remains to this day one of the episodes that we've gotten the most comments and feedback on. Oh, good. Yeah, and I think you really made an impact with um, a lot of our listeners um, in, in terms of talking about the way that we have historically thought about our bodies mm, and mm-hmm. the legacy of that way of thinking that remains with us mm. today. So thank you and welcome back. It's always a pleasure to be here. I love the podcast, listen to it myself. And it was just so fun coming in and speaking last time about all things the body. And so I'm just happy to come and talk about another avenue of research I've done mm. on denim and all things jeans and... It'll be fun. Yeah, and this has actually been a much-requested topic from our listeners. So I know this may be a very basic question (laughs) for you, and I'm guessing that nearly all of our listeners own a denim garment um, because, as you note in your book, denim is by far the most worn textile on the planet. Mm. But technically speaking, what is denim? You know, it's funny. uh, In thinking about this question, it does seem so basic. What is denim? But actually, when I was doing research for the exhibition, I was surprised by how complicated 
that question got, sort of this rabbit hole that kept going down. Because denim is a textile with a long history. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's familiar with textiles knows that technology plays a huge role. Right. Fibers and how they're developed. And so textiles can evolve drastically. Technically speaking, if you ask, you know, a real denim head, denim obsessed connoisseur, they will say that denim is a warp face twill made out of cotton. So mm -hmm. it's using a cotton thread for both the warp and the weft threads. And it's got the twill weave. So it's really kind of almost ribbed feeling, very structured, very sturdy. And it's warp faced, which means that the warp basically sits on top. And another requirement typically for denim is that the warp threads are blue mm -hmm. often. And that they're not just blue, but they're dyed blue in a particular way, either through rope dyeing or long chain dyeing. And what that does is it creates a pattern in the threads of the textile itself. Mm -hmm. So that the blue dye, because of the process of dipping the threads, taking them back out, dipping them again, you don't have the blue color seep all the way through the natural cotton fiber. Instead, it only seeps through just at the edges, leaving the core of the thread basically white mm -hmm. or natural cotton color. And that's where we get the fade pattern on jeans because those blue warp threads are sitting on top. It's a warp face twill, so they're sitting on top on the face of the denim. And then over time, as you brush your hands on the top of your pants, as you kind of get up, sit down, you know, pull things in and out of your pockets, you're slowly taking some of that blue dye off. And as it comes off, the core of the white thread in the middle gets exposed over and over in increasing patterns. So that's what people really think of when they think of denim. But when, as I was looking, you know, now you go into a store and there's stretch mm -hmm. in denim. They're not all blue. Mm -hmm. They're not even all the same weight or even that warp face twill weave, but we still identify them as denim. And I would argue that they're not, not denim. You know, it's showing how the textile has continued to stay relevant and pick up and incorporate different aspects of the times. When I was doing the show in the catalog, I actually sort of nerd alert equated this. <laughs> we like nerd alerts. <laughs> equated this with Plutarch's paradox of Theseus's ship. Mm -hmm. This is a story about how Theseus, you know, the famous hero um, of Greek mythology, how in Athens they they kept his ship as as this sort of commemorative statue monument to this hero. But that over time, you know, the planks wore out, the mass wore out. They had to, you know, bring in new replacement parts so that over time, the entire ship was replaced. Can that ship, made entirely out of new component parts, still be called Theseus's ship? Right. You know, it's a paradox. There's not, you know, necessarily a right or a wrong answer. And, and I, I just kept on feeling like that with denim. We replace the threads. We change the color. We replace the weave. Is it still denim? Mm-hmm. And again, I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer. There's some connoisseurs out there who are going to say, no, mm -hmm. that's not denim. But I would say that it is. Culturally and socially, it is denim. Yeah. Well, and there are also, I think, some other textiles that 
that are denim esque that people mm, identify absolutely. as denim, yes, which are which are not right, like chambray. Yes, for instance, chambray is is absolutely the classic example. You know, you'll go onto J Crew or what have you and see a denim shirt. Quote unquote. Mm-hmm. You know, it's basically a blue shirt, blue and white looking denim esque shirt, but really it's chambray. And right. the key difference between chambray and denim is that chambray is a plain weave textile and it's weaving blue and white threads together, which give it that kind of denim look, but it doesn't have that double layered warp face twill that right. you really sort of recognize the denim. A, a, a surefire way most of the time, and again, this doesn't work all the time. <laughs> because of how denim, you know, multifaceted it is now. But usually a surefire way to see if something's sort of denim or something chambray is to flip it over, Mm -hmm. you know, turn it inside out. A true denim usually will be white on the inside of the pant leg. You know, that's why when you cuff a jean, you know, you see that different color. And that's because the weft is sitting on the bottom and the warp is sitting on the top. So you have those two different colors. But with a chambray, it's just a plain weave. You know, you're just weaving those two fibers together and it's going to look the same on the top and the bottom. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the origin of denim, Mm. which also is not as straightforward (laughs) as one might think. There there are several different myths that kind of Mm. swirl around the origin of denim. What can you tell us about this? Well, so the most popular myth is that it's French and Mm -hmm. that the name denim comes from French de Nîmes or of Nîmes, Mm -hmm. Nîmes being a city that's in the south of France. Now, there's a lot of reasons to kind of doubt this, but it's thought that denim is most likely actually a, a British textile. Hmm. One of the reasons being that uh, the English were vital um, in developing technology in not just the weaving process, but also the spinning of threads and the spinning of cotton threads to make them strong enough to attach to a loom and to be the warp thread of a loom. Mm-hmm. You know, that requires a really durable fiber. And and cotton for so long was actually quite weak as a fiber in these long threads. But anyway, the key thing is is that they think that likely the British maybe gave the fabric a French-sounding name Ah. to give it a certain je ne sais quoi Uh (laughs) on the market. Um, But uh, there's also, you know, a number of other myths about the name for Jean, you know, and how that comes from Italian and Genoa and the Genovese sailors and all of this. Um, but again, what I found most interesting in my research was just how murky the origin story really is. Mm-hmm. That when you look at the histories that have been written and the research that has been done, people have manifests, import manifests into the U.S from the 18th century, where you see both denim and jean listed. So it's clear that there hasn't always been such a strict definition of these fabrics, and that really it was one of a family of durable workwear material. And there's the potential that what people were referring to as denim or as jean in the 18th and the 17th century 
maybe would look very different than what we have today. Right, right. Well, you know, where or exactly when denim first emerged may never exactly be yeah, clear. absolutely. We don't know. Um, but what we definitely know is that by the 19th century, mm-hmm. it was a very well-respected textile prized for its durability and strength, especially in the United States yes. at this point. Can you speak about this relationship between denim work and quote-unquote Americanness? Yeah, I mean, that's obviously American identity, Americanness is one of the things most associated with denim. And and I and I don't think that that's bad or that that's wrong, but I think that there's a much more nuanced history to sort of denim and labor and America and mm-hmm. American socio-political demographics. Because the reality is that when we think of denim as workwear, we have this really romanticized view of the California gold rush prospector, mm-hmm. you know. Cowboys. Yeah, cowboys, the West and the great wide open plain and riding off on your horseback into the sunset. And it's not to say so much that that's not a part of this history, but it's more that the history encompasses so much more. In for example, in the museum at FIT in our collection, we have a woman's workwear jacket from mm-hmm. the early 19th century that's made out of denim. And this would have been something that a woman would have worn probably when working in the fields, laboring out of doors. And when we talk about that in the 19th century, the reality is we're talking about slavery. Mm-hmm. So slaves were wearing denim as much as miners and prospectors were wearing denim. Also, even though we're thinking about it with predominantly white cowboys and that sort of Marlboro Man image that has become such a sort of idol Mm -hmm. of American culture, we also have to realize that the Chinese immigrant workforce building the Transcontinental Railway were wearing denim. They were Mm -hmm. wearing jeans. They were wearing overalls. So, yes, part of the West, part of the expansion of the West, but maybe not the romantic, nostalgic view that was always picked up on. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is a a schism, in a way, between the lived American experience of denim as it happened throughout history and the view that we take of denim, the popular mythology of denim and its link to Americanness that we have now— And it's important for us to kind of try to reconcile the two um, and sort of understand why they developed in the way that they did without erasing from the history the the very real and hardworking reality of denim's past in this country, Mm -hmm. sort of at all levels and across the country and, you know, across races and ages. In the context of Americanness, and also I think you said the phrase legend of denim. I, <laughs> I, I love that. What could possibly be more American than Hollywood? Yeah. Who contributed greatly to this legend of denim. Absolutely. And also and, and an entire love affair with denim. Yes. Especially in the 1950s. Yes. So not only in terms of Western wear, because of course Western movies were very popular, but but also that of the quote-unquote uniform of the bad boy heartthrob. And how has denim functioned historically as a symbol of rebellion at certain points Mm. in time? So what's interesting for me is that I don't actually see the figure of the rebel as being that distinct from the figure of the cowboy. Mm -hmm. 
They're very much related. It's just one is a pre-World War II and one is <laughs> post-war. But in, in many ways, when you look at them, they are both the lone individual man. One is the, you know, cowboy outlaw in the Wild West railroad setting, and one is the member of the biker gang on his Harley. In both cases, they're wearing their Levi's 501s and their boots. On one hand, their cowboy boots. On the other hand, their biker boots. They both have their animal hide jacket. One, it's a suede fringe jacket for the cowboy. And then you've got the perfecto jacket for the biker on his Harley. And then they both got their hats as well. You just swap the horse for the Harley. Mm -hmm. And they're so similar. And so I think that it is very much a product of the kind of broader culture in which they're introduced. You know, that sort of pre-war, there is this sort of romantic notion and and a sort of general curiosity um, and cultural sort of embrace of this cowboy figure. Whereas after the war, you know, we culturally, there is a move towards a much more conservative outlook and a kind of coming home and wanting to protect and create a sort of Eden-like suburb, right? And the cowboy lone sort of figure, but now as the Harley-riding biker gang member, is an affront to that suburban ideal. And so genes begin to represent this danger, Right. This danger to this ideal environment and safety and everything that it entails. And so that's absolutely just so crucial. And then you have figures like Elvis Presley with his, you know, denim jeans and his hips swiveling. And, you know, it's completely, you know, erotic and sexual and scary Mm -hmm. to that sort of suburban landscape. And then it gets really solidified even more by the counterculture movement of the hippies. Right. Once the hippies adopt the ripped, pre-worn, embroidered denim jeans as their de facto uniform, jeans are completely cemented as a counterculture image. And... Since then, we've really seen almost every counterculture and subculture movement have their version of wearing denim. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We are going to take a short sponsor break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the flip side (laughs) from counterculture, and we're going to talk about the world of designer denim. Welcome back, Emma. Designer denim wasn't always a thing. Before there was designer denim, there were the big three. Mm -hmm. Um, So for more than a century, there were kind of only like a handful of major denim brands. Mm. Who were they? And what also were their contributions to the popularity of jeans? Mm. So the most important historical companies are, without a doubt, Levi's, and also Lee. Mm -hmm. Uh, The sort of third in that trifecta is Wrangler. But actually, Wrangler doesn't come onto the scene until the 30s and 40s. And it's really a product of the sort of cowboy Hollywood whole thing. But for the better part of a century, you know, um, Levi's first, but and then Lee were creating workwear 
out of denim. You know, that was that was their thing. And that's all denim was. Before Hollywood and the cowboy movies come along, denim is not romantic. Mm-hmm. It's not nostalgic. It is workwear full stop. There's no other reason you would wear jeans other than you are working in a garage. You're a mechanic. You are a miner. You're a farmer. You know, you are doing hard labor and you're wearing these things. And and typically also these denim garments are protective layers that are meant to be worn over other day clothes. You know, jeans, Levi's in their first what we now know as the 501, when it was first sort of patented in 1873, it was dubbed the waist overalls. Mm -hmm. They weren't called jeans. Right. And it was because they were, you know, meant to, and they even had sort of suspender buttons on them because you were meant to buy them pretty big and wear them over your other clothes as a protective layer in the mines or what have you. Um, and, and same with Lee. One of the earliest, most successful things that they did were these denim coveralls, which was essentially this, you know, what we think of as a boiler suit. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it was for mechanics. It was for people working on cars that get all of this kind of grease and oil and everything. And you have to realize cars are pretty new at this point in the early 20th century when we're, when it's first developed. And so again, it's meant to be worn over a uniform by a chauffeur or worn over day clothes. So it's very protective. It is not designer. It's not cool. It's not rebellious. It is workwear. Right. Full stop. Then we enter the 1970s, right? Yes. And this was a huge turning point for denim and specifically the jeans industry. Why so? So actually, I think the 1970s is when jeans go mainstream Mm -hmm. and denim becomes just everyday clothing, you know, and it's not just jeans, as you say, it's full suits. It's, you know, people get shoes made out of denim. People have bathing suits made out of, it's a whole thing. It's a denim moment. But leading up to that, it's really, again, the counterculture movement and the hippies of the 1960s who bring jeans into the mainstream and bring jeans into the living rooms and into the stores around the country. A pivotal moment in this chronology is Woodstock. Mm -hmm. Because Woodstock was televised, it was reported on, you know, images of the crowds that were at Woodstock. It was this cultural event. And so many of the performers and also the concert goers were wearing jeans. Now, you know, many of the performers and also many of the attendees were wearing very trendy jeans, you know, both bell-bottoms that had been bought at Army-Navy secondhand stores, but also at, you know, things that have been acted upon and mm-hmm. DIY'd and stitched and ripped and patched and all that. But then there were a whole bunch of people who were just wearing Levi's 501s. Mm-hmm. You know, and this was such a pivotal moment to the point that the following year, Levi's used an aerial shot of the crowd at Woodstock as an ad. And this was a tipping point into pushing the counterculture, the hippie movement into the mainstream and the style of the hippies getting co-opted by fashion. You know, it's important to note that denim clothing in general for the hippies was a tool of protest. It was a tool of resistance. They dressed in a particular way 
as a symbol of their political outlook and as a rebuke of the post-war consumerism and the disposable culture and plastics and industrial military complex that they thought were kind of killing the environment and destroying culture, destroying the world. And then it's in this moment, as we get into the early 70s of the hippie movement going mainstream, where their distinctive look that they had created gets co-opted, in a sense, by one of the very industries they're protesting against. So jeans explode across the market at every level. You have Yves Saint Laurent Mm -hmm. for his Rive Gauche line creating denim safari jackets. Mm -hmm. And you have full suits for men, leisure suits made in denim. And then, of course, you still have the jeans. And you even have the big three, you know, the Levi's, the Lee, these companies that have been making workwear trying to get in on the game. And they create bell bottoms. And they create, you know, these sort of crazy psychedelic patterns. So it's a real tipping point. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, these these high fashion designer jeans were pretty much the antithesis Mm. of the denim workwear of the 19th century. This is not what we're talking about Uh anymore. This is full-on fashion system. Yes, um, absolutely. Run amok. Right, right. (laughs) Um, And and jeans were not the only appearance that we see denim in high fashion. There were some other early adopters. Claire McArdle comes to mind. Right, absolutely. What what is the place of denim in the context of that in this American ethos of, quote-unquote, American fashion, not mm. American workwear? Right. So it is important to point out that beyond jeans, there's been a, a long sort of cross-pollination between denim and workwear and fashion. And as you say, Claire McArdle is key. Also, Bonnie Cashin mm-hmm. is another key person. Um, even Couturier Elsa Schiaparelli kind of dabbled in this aesthetic using chambray. What is, you know, barring the Scaparelli example, which I think was more sort of surrealist and sort of putting opposing, you know, juxtaposition side by side. With McArdle, you know, she looked to denim for its durability and for its workwear when she created her popover dress Mm -hmm. um, in the 1940s. And she was unveiling it during World War II as this practical garment for the fashionable housewife to wear now that she was forced to do her own chores around the house. Because... During the war, it, the Rosie the Riveter figures, the women who went and worked as part of the war effort, were by and large from the service sector. Mm-hmm. So now you had these socialite figures who, heaven for fend, they didn't had to, have help anymore. Yes, they didn't have help anymore. They had to scrub their own bathtubs, and you know <laughs> they couldn't wear their couture while they did that. So, so again. McArdle is creating her popover dress. So you even have in the name, it's a sort of wrap style, but it's popover. You're meant to put it over as this protective barrier over your other clothing. And it had an oven mitt that matched that mm-hmm. it came complete with. But and and Bonnie Cashin also dabbles with denim, you know, but with both of these, what Bonnie Cashin's doing is she's creating a beach ensemble out of denim. And there's this whole genre of quote unquote play clothes yes, that are coming that out period. in the interwar period and into the 50s, where it's clothes for sort of leisure time when you're going to the beach, 
going for a cookout, when you're maybe in the garden. And denim was very popular. Denim and chambray were very popular in that genre. So what we see with both of these instances, the popover and the play clothes, is this notion of occasional dressing. Mm -hmm. And so denim was okay. And even fashionable as a form for a particular type of situation. You're cleaning. Right. You're going to the beach. But you're not going to wear this to the office. You're not going to wear this out on the streets in the city. You're not going to, this isn't fashionable dressing, everyday wear. That's what happens in the 70s. That's the tipping point. And so now, again, we see dresses, suits, all these things, and the jeans. But now you can wear them anywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's a huge, huge moment. And of course, by the end of the 70s, this gets really solidified with figures like Gloria Vanderbilt. Of course. And Calvin Klein. Jordash. And Jordash coming in with the stiff, dark, high-rise, very sleek. This isn't your hippie denim. This is sleek and stiff and chic, high-end. And tight. And tight, <laughs> sexy denim. Right. And, and, and again, it, it, it ushers in this notion of it's not just every day now. Now it's, it's really aspirational. Yeah. Cut to today. <laughs> and, and there's some serious aspirational denim. Oh, yes. Out there on the market. On last week's episode, I interviewed Dana Thomas, and, and we mentioned just really briefly this mm. quote-unquote cult of denim. Uh. Um, and, and we talked about how just like their self-professed sneaker heads are yes. also self-professed denim heads. Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the contemporary artisanal denim scene? And, and what are some of the techniques that we are seeing being used? And also, I guess my last question was like, what are some of the price points mm. that some of this rare artisanal denim can command. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the the denim head culture is a rabbit hole <laughs> in the sense that it's very narrow mm -hmm. vocabulary of products that you're looking at, but it goes deep in terms of how many companies, once you sort of start... Like pulling pull the it, Yeah, you okay. just realize how how big this subculture is, you know, and how obsessive it is, you know. And there are brands that don't have huge wide distribution but have cult-like followings. This is something that really started in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, so Japan, after World War II and during the Korean War, a lot of GIs, you know, and and army, U.S. Army um, troops were based there. And they would bring their jeans. And, you know, because of the popularization of Hollywood and all these kind of culture uh, sources, jeans were unobtainable there. They weren't being sold. And so GIs would sell their used jeans to this up-priced market in Japan. And, and that really kind of continued through a secondhand market, but then eventually getting into the late 70s, into the 80s, Japan starts to see a rise in domestic denim companies that are all about trying to recreate this quote-unquote authentic historical denim of the Levi's 501s and the Lee Riders and all this stuff. And they're doing it down to the kind of twist of the thread. Wow. They're taking apart 
vintage pairs of Levi's, copying their patterns, copying them down to the stitch work. For the exhibition I did, actually, uh, a few years ago, we acquired a piece from one of these nascent labels called Studio Dartison. And it was a pretty much direct copy of a World War I-era pair of Levi's 501s. And what I found most fascinating about it was that the double arch stitch work on mm-hmm. the back pocket, it's called the arcuate in the denim head kind of <laughs> world, um, was actually not stitched. It looked like it. When you got up close, you realized that the stitch marks had been painted on Why? with yellow, you know, kind of gold paint. And it's because during World War One there was rationing. And you couldn't use extra thread. You couldn't you you weren't allowed to use thread for decorative elements. But Levi's was so dedicated. You know, Levi's is just a fascinating company. Um, but Levi's was so dedicated to its branding and its logo that it decided, how about that? We're going to paint it. it. You know, we're going to paint that double arch stitching. And and so this Japanese company is reproducing it down to the painting. So eventually this reaches beyond Japan. You know, American companies, Scandinavian companies start to crop up. Nudie Jeans is a big label in here. And one thing that starts to happen in this market is also the idea of raw denim, Mm -hmm. um, which is another kind of subset of this obsessive connoisseur (laughs) culture, which is raw denim basically means denim that has come kind of straight off the loom and is made into pants, into jeans, uh, as opposed to denim that has been stonewashed or pre-washed. And now we hear stonewash and we immediately think of like terrible 80s jeans that are acid washed and crazy looking. But the reality is almost every pair of jeans you're ever going to buy in a store are stonewashed. All it means is that they're washed in industrial size washing machines with little pumice stones. And based on the amount of wear and tear, how soft you want the jeans, you will go through however many cycles the stones will be, however big. There's a whole, again, rabbit hole subculture of these wash houses out in LA, all around the world. That It's this, it's this science, really, of mm-hmm. how they get these different effects. But raw denim is so stiff. It's so hard. People will go and get it, and they don't really know what they're getting into, and they put it on, and they're like, oh, my God, this is so uncomfortable. And it's like, yeah, this was workwear. Yeah. This is how it was. It, it was in. designed to be a protective layer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to break it in. But labels like Nudie Jeans, they re- were, you know, key in thinking about this raw denim movement. So you go and you get it. And the idea here is, again, about authenticity, right? This is the real denim. And and again, I, I would say, I would problematize that to say that there's all different ways of looking at what's real or authentic. But the notion is, is that you personalize it yourself. You wear it. And you wear it for a year without washing it. Mm -hmm. You know, if it starts to smell, you're supposed to put it in a freezer. (laughs) All sorts of things. And then after you've worn it, you know, almost every day for a year and you've really started to get it, you know, broken down and feeling soft and And worn in. And for your body, And for your body, exactly. Then you wash it. And it's at that point that that first layer of the blue dye really comes off in the wash. And all of a sudden, you get those wear patterns that we're so used to seeing on jeans reveal themselves. And 
there are examples. You can look these up online. There's crazy examples of a guy, you know, a guy who kept his iPhone in the same pocket every day. And you'll see the outline. Uh. And you'll see where his knees are. You'll see, you know, the the whisker marks is what it's called, the sort of um, horizontal uh, wear pattern that comes out, that emanates out from the fly. Mm-hmm. That's called whiskering. And, and that's from sitting. You know, sitting in your pants pucker. So there's all these things that will give a sense to the body. So there is this interesting dichotomy in genes where on the one hand, they're one of, if not the most homogenizing garment on the planet. As you said earlier, you can go into almost anybody's wardrobe and find a pair of jeans. But on the flip side, they are also something that is highly conformable to your personal body. And this notion of having your favorite pair of jeans is often about these personalized marks, these signs of being lived in, the signs of a life cycle, Mm -hmm. of experience, of individuality that are why we love denim so much. Emma? Yes. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. No, it's my my pleasure. <laughs> I think I think you, um, once again, g- gave our listeners a lot to think about. And I think that the next time that they pull those jeans on. <laughs> <laughs> I know. There's so much to talk about denim, too, because I will also just, if it's okay, add just a close that with denim, you know, there is also the flip side to all this positive stuff, which is that denim, since it is such a huge market, and since there are so many companies producing denim out there and so many people buying denim out there, it is a huge pollutant, too. Because, you know, as I was mentioning, these jeans, even before they hit the store floor, are getting washed mm-hmm. multiple times. Think about the water that that takes, the pollution that that causes. You're polluting the water because they're getting pumped full of chemicals and rocks and all sorts of stuff like that. Then you have individual laborers sort of shaving down the jeans with sandpaper or That's sandblasting. That Dana and, and I talked about a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so it's just, you know— <sighs> As with everything in the fashion industry, when we talk about process and industry and and global reach, there is a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Um, so not to end on a sad note, you know, denim is great, and I love denim, but it's something that I hope we all, just as consumers, get more educated about what's in our closet and where it comes from and how it's made and what the real impact is of it. Because denim is one of the most ubiquitous garments. And as one of the most ubiquitous garments, it also one of the most problematic. Right. It's going to have a major impact no matter major, what. Major, major impact. So just keep those jeans. That's right. Keep them. Hold on to them. <laughs> keep, mend. <laughs> I have I have a pair in my drawer right now that I is my, are my current favorite, and I think I've mended them like three times. Yeah. No, I mean, it's so I just true. keep patching them up. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, jeans are also another space, you know, echoing stuff from the previous time I was on your show. Jeans are also one of the places that get talked about the most in terms of sizing. Mm-hmm. And in terms of bodies and in terms of fit. And and I do think that there is a a side of this too where the the body that jeans were originally made for, this sort of male body, ha- has led to problems in finding cuts of jeans and in thinking about jeans for a range of body types. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you so much yeah, for joining us again. Yeah. And, um, you know, you know, I'm going to hit you up to come back and talk about your power show at some yes, point. Yes, absolutely. It would be my pleasure. <laughs> um, where can people find you if they are interested more about your work? Yeah, so um, I'm at the museum at FIT. We've got a lot of content on our website and on our YouTube channels. We do a lot of public programming. And we even did some stuff for denim that's on there if you want to kind of go and look in the past. And there's a digital version of the exhibition there. I'm also personally on Instagram. So you can follow me at Emma McClendon. But otherwise, you know, I encourage you guys to come and check out the museum the next time you're in New York because we're free and open to the public and always have something on view. Yep. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us again on Dressed, Emma. You know, April, my husband is, uh, as you know, very into small batch denim culture. I know. (laughs) Um, Both American and Japanese. So some of his favorite brands include Blue Blue Japan and Japan Blue. Um, Those are both small batch Japanese denim brands, but there's also a lot of American-made brands such as Flint and Tinder, Imogene and Willie, Brave Star, Gustin. These are all American-made jeans. And it's It's a pretty incredible commitment that he has with his denim. You know, he gets this brand new pair of dark blue indigo dyed jeans. And over the process of six months to a year, he wears them in until they gradually fade into, you know, this kind of faded blue. And and they actually become fitted to his body. So in order to not compromise the integrity of the indigo and the garment, he only washes his jeans like once every three to six months, if that. I know. And I love this idea of personalizing your jeans through the practice of wearing them. You know, jeans are a very haptic garment. This is my new favorite word, by the way, haptic, meaning how something feels to the touch. And we all know when a pair of jeans feel great and and when they also just really aren't working for your body, you know, and then breaking them in and creating the patterns of wear specific to your body by the way that you move in them. I don't know. I find this a very romantic notion. It is very romantic. And Sean looks quite good in his blue jeans. I'm going to say that too. (laughs) Speaking of romance. (laughs) Uh, And while we're on the subject of denim, April, I wanted to actually tell you about this new, um, you know, kind of project I've been embarking on. And it's with upcycling my used denim. You know, I think we all kind of have this tendency to throw out things when they get holes in them or when they wear, you know, and especially, you know, if you're someone like me, like the middle of my thighs wears out immediately. Um, And you can have a seamstress fix that. But I have this like whole batch of blue jeans that have just been sitting here waiting for a project. And so I literally cut them all up April and I wove them into rugs. Oh, fun. That's awesome. (laughs) You'll have to post some photos. I will. And it's, you know, it's surprisingly simple, dress listeners, to make your own hand weaving loom. I literally, it's, the one I use is just a piece of square wood and you just like wrap the twine around it and weave. So I'm having a blast repurposing my denim and I hope our listeners will too. And that actually, April, that does it for season two of Dressed. I can't believe it. Time flies. <laughs> um, you know, and I just want to say, April Callahan, that I um, really appreciate you. And I, um, having done this for two seasons now and having known you for the past, gosh, nine years, this yeah. has been such a treat and a joy. Um, and wow. I cannot well, I wait. I love you too. I feel for the season same. three. Yeah. You know, thank you for being my partner in all things fashion history. That's true. Yes. <laughs> And may it continue on for many, many more years. Yes. 
Um, so dress listeners, may you consider the romance of denim and maybe even recycling, upcycling your old denim into your wardrobe next time you get dressed. A huge thank you to all of our listeners out there that made this show such a success the past two seasons. We look forward to having you join us for season three, which will launch the first week of February. We'd like to wish everyone a happy and healthy holiday season and a happy new year. Here's to 2020 being a year of change fashion-related or otherwise, we will still, of course, be active on our Instagram feed during the hiatus. So if you'd like to submit a question for a fashion history mystery for season three, you can DM us at dressed underscore podcast, or you can also email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And an extra special thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry for the last two years of their work on Dressed. We love you guys and thank you so much. Yes, much love to Casey, Holly, and all of our listeners. We will catch back up with you in February. Cheers. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.